The Gist is brought to you by Roku and HBO Now. Roku players offer the biggest selection of streaming channels, like HBO Now. Learn more and try HBO Now free for one month by going to roku.com slash the gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, March 3rd, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. May you live in interesting times. And don't we? Don't we all? Don't we really feel the import of that Chinese curse? You know, it is a curse. May you live in interesting times. I was thinking of that curse. I said, these are the times we're living in. They are so interesting and you can see why it's a curse. And then I thought for 0.3 seconds more and I said, there is no way that's really a Chinese curse. That is definitely something some white guy made up and said, oh, it's a Chinese curse. So I went to the Google machine and it took me to the Wikipedia page. And yeah, right at the top, it's just not a Chinese curse. The closest version is something like, in times of peace, it is better to be a dog than it is to be a human in times of war, which isn't close at all. But what this Wikipedia page about this Chinese curse really taught me was actual Chinese curses. Fascinating. For instance, there's Tao Hao Yan. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to even try. I don't, I'll, especially the multisyllabic ones. But anyway, that is a crude slang word for vagina, and it literally means garden of peach blossoms. Isn't that nice? A slang way of saying prostitute, I'll try this one, is Mai Dofu, which means literally selling tofu. It's a euphemism for prostitution. Aircraft carrier Heng Kong Mujian means a woman with a flat chest like an aircraft carrier. The Chinese just getting into purchasing aircraft carriers. Perhaps this insult, along with several aircraft, will take off. Here are some other Chinese curses. Can't say what it is in Mandarin, but what it translates to is Fuck your ancestors to the 18th generation. That's nice, right? How about this one? Damn on your second uncle. I don't know if that's really mean or kind of the nicest way to get away with a curse that's not really a curse. Their version for a toady or sucking up is pai ma pi, which means patting a horse's butt. Someone who is full of it, someone who has limited professional expertise but boasts nonetheless, is said to be a half-empty bottle of vinegar. And a braggart is said to be blowing air into a cow's vagina. But my absolute favorite Chinese curse, not gonna, it's a long phrase, but what it translates to is this May your child be born with an imperforate anus. Let that be a lesson to all of us. Speaking of curses, there have been 1,845 cases of alleged insults against President Erdogan of Turkey. As we flirt with our own thin-skinned quasi-fascists, let's take the lesson of Erdogan. Here, Donald Trump is looking into expanding the libel laws so he's able to sue people who insult him. Erdogan has done it almost 2,000 times. There is a a philosophy professor who published an op-ed saying that Erdogan deserves to face trial. Well, that professor has been brought up on charges. He does not deny writing the article. He just says, it's not an insult. It's called criticism. A 14-year-old boy was sent to prison for insulting the president on Facebook. A 16-year-old boy was arrested during a protest. He called Erdogan a thief. 
Last year, another 16-year-old paid $2,000 for insulting Erdogan on a Twitter post. A former Miss Turkey faces criminal charges for reposting an anti-Erdogan poem on Instagram. And in the most celebrated case, a doctor was banned by the Public Health Institution of Turkey for comparing Erdogan to Gollum. The trial has not been settled because the judge couldn't decide if it was an insult or not. Is Gollum a tragic figure or is he an evil figure? The fate of this doctor and Turkish democracy might hang in the balance. On the show today, I spiel about conceptualizing odds. It is quite likely that we'll get Donald Trump as a Republican nominee. Mitt Romney wouldn't like it, but what does quite likely mean? Some analogies abound. But first, Maria Konnikova is here to play Is That Bullshit? And I feel I can use the word bullshit after all the peach blossoms I've referred to. Is That Bullshit? Topic arranged marriages. Love, exciting and new. Well, it is exciting, but it's also kind of new. Maybe there was love before the love boat existed, when your yeoman pursers would fall in love with your young executives on her way to a fabulous meeting on the, on the Aloha deck. But the point is love marriages as an idea. Let's get married to someone because we love them. That is kind of a new idea. And there's kind of a debate around it because before loved marriages and actually concurrently with love marriages, there's the arranged marriage. The arranged marriage has its detractors, but also its fans. Joining me now to figure out which one's better for you is Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game and joins me on the gist to play Is That Bullshit? Hello, Maria. Hello, Mike. When was the point, do we know, when love marriages started becoming more popular than the marriages that your parents said you guys got to do it? Yeah, so actually until relatively recently, the 18th century, arranged marriages were the thing in all societies. So it's not not just India, where they still exist today, not just China, but all over the world. And not just and, among nobles. Like and not just among nobles classes, and, yes. not, and not just among religious communities. This was really a thing. I mean, there were aristocratic marriages, as you say, but there were also marriages where, you know, the village elders would get together and figure out, you know, who is best suited for whom. But this was so long ago, the elders were actually 39 years old. Exactly, exactly. They were grandfathers. Mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's only been going on for a couple hundred yep. years. And obviously it became a adopted because people wanted to do it. Sure. The people yep. actually getting yep. married. Yep. Yeah. So that would seem to argue that it's better that people opt into it. Mm -hmm. But what argues against? So first of all, a few statistics. We do know that there are about, and I've got these from UNICEF, about 26.25 million arranged marriages a year. Okay. That is over half 53.25% of all marriages that take place in the world. Now, this is disproportionately because arranged marriages are still a huge thing in India. And Asia. And Asia. And all throughout exactly. Asia. And China. And exactly. they were talking about exactly. two and a half billion people. Exactly. And just, a young population. Exactly. And a getting married population. Exactly. Yeah. And just as a point of comparison, in the United States every year, about two million marriages. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So that just gives you an order of magnitude of why arranged marriages are still over half the marriages. Then you have divorce rates. Yes. And in arranged marriages, the divorce rate across all arranged marriages is about 6.3%. In India, it's even smaller. So 88.4% of marriages in India 
still are arranged, and the divorce rate is 1.2%. But there's so much noise in those statistics. Exactly. Other things affecting so, the divorce so, rate. So we can get into that. That is, I think, the basis of the claim that people say, well, arranged marriages aren't so bad. You know, yes, people opt into love marriages, but look at the divorce rates. You know, there's so much higher, and there's so much tumult. And really, there's this perceived wisdom, or at least one perceived wisdom, that in love marriages, the amount of love goes down. The passion kind of is really strong at the beginning, mm-hmm. and then it peters out. Whereas in arranged marriages, it's the opposite. You don't really love each other because you don't know each other, but then love grows over time. Yes. Um, I think Tevya taught me that. Yes. Or maybe it was Seidel. Yes. I, a lot of my information comes from Fiddler. Yes. Yeah. Yes. He also taught me how to become a rich man. Uh-huh. Yes. Also, he mm-hmm. pointed out that Houdan Knight must scramble for a living, feed his wife and children, make his daily bread. And say who has the right prayers. as say his daily prayers, that's right. Yep. <laughs> who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? The Papa. Yes. That's not true. He doesn't he doesn't have that right. Well, actually, that's very funny you say that because there have been studies that show that look at satisfaction in okay. different types of marriages. I wasn't going to start with this one, but since since you say who has the final word at home, the Papa yes. tradition, yes. Um, we find da, that. Da, 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 can we do this other? Da, 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 da. <laughs> there actually are gender differences, and men tend to be much happier in arranged marriages yeah. than women. Well, of course, because and... a love marriage reflects this more open society. Well, I don't know, of course, but women, the the structure of a society that allows for more arranged marriages would also allow for more emancipation of women, yes. I would say. Yes, uh, A recent study from 2013 um, that looked at arranged marriages did show that men were happier, but that the degree of choice of the spouse also predicted greater happiness. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, we hardly ever have blind marriages these days. So those are arranged marriages where you didn't even get to see the spouse ahead of time. Now, Now you usually get to at least have some degree of say. And it seems that the more choice you have, the happier the marriage ends up being, right. which seems to go against this notion that arranged marriages actually lead to stability. So you were talking about noise in the statistics. Right. So let's look at those types of cultures where where we have arranged marriage. Those are also cultures where divorce is highly stigmatized. Yes. And talking about your marriage is also kind of taboo um, because that's airing your dirty laundry in public. And so... And also societies where it's legal and countenanced to abuse one's spouse in a marriage. So there's less divorce where there absolutely should be divorce. Yes. And so we absolutely cannot trust those statistics as meaning anything about the marriage quality. Right. So how do you get a good... It seems hard but not impossible to have... If not an apples to apples, then, you know, at least a, a, a Macintosh to Empire to Gala. I'm done with my apple breeds varieties, right? So maybe people who had the choice of either arranged or love marriage. Is that, there such a person? That would have been a phenomenal study. Yeah. Unfortunately, it does not exist. No. What we do have is a number of studies starting from the 80s um, and going until today that look at happiness levels and different metrics of marital satisfaction among people who were in arranged marriages versus people who were in love marriages. Now, there was this 1982 study that a lot of people originally cited, and it did show these different trajectories that over time, people in love marriages felt less love and people in Arranged marriages felt more love. But that study has been, the results have been really severely questioned since then because the people doing the study were from a society with arranged marriage 
And so, and one of them. They were forced to become marriage researchers because they had arranged career paths as well. And one of them actually was in an arranged marriage. (laughs) So so we have a little bit of experimenter bias then. I mean, happiness ratings are really subjective, obviously, because only you know how happy you are. But happiness scales are also, it's really difficult to say, like, how happy are you? And there's a lot of self-report bias because people won't say how happy they actually are. They'll misreport it. And so Mm -hmm. then we end up having a 1990 study that shows the opposite. Um, That was a big study in China, in Chengdu, and that found that regardless of marriage length, people who were in arranged marriages were much less happy than people who were in love marriages. And no other background factors um, could explain it. So they did control for a lot of stuff. Chengdu or Cheng, I do. I <laughs> don't know how much that helped, um, but I had to say. And you also find lower satisfaction in arranged marriages in a 1999 study of Israeli couples, a 2005 study in South Africa of people of Indian origin, and in Turkey. And then a 2005, which is one of the more recent ones, India study, shows that there are no differences at all uh-huh. between satisfaction. So now we've got all three. Okay. Right? We've got studies that show one is happier studies that show the others happier, studies that show no differences at all. But people still seem to think that one should somehow be better than the other. Mm -hmm. Um, And people do have a lot of ingrained biases. So people from love societies tend to think that love marriages should be better. People from arranged marriage societies tend to think that arranged marriages should be better. You even see different researchers running these different studies to this day from different universities and of different ethnic origins. That same problem keeps persisting. Some of these studies actually ask what's important to you in a marriage. Mm -hmm. And you start seeing differences. So for instance, in the United States, couples place more emphasis on love and loyalty. In India, those fall much lower on the rankings. And so when you end up ranking your satisfaction, you're looking at different criteria for, is my marriage a success? Yes. So you're not actually answering the same question because to an American saying, is my marriage a success? Am I happy with it? It's very different from someone from an Indian society saying, is my marriage a success? It strikes me that there's a temporal element to that because, you know, hundreds of years ago when there only was arranged marriage, there was a totally different idea of happiness. It was called like eating and not starving to death. Mm-hmm. Still one of my ideas. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And the other thing I do want to say is that we do we know a few things about marriage that have been replicated in you know any sort of a marriage. Just when people study marriage, for instance, people getting married later in life yes. tend to be happier and tend to have fewer divorces. Arranged marriages usually happen much younger in life. So I'm, I'm not going to draw any conclusions from that. I'm just saying that this is empirically something that we do know. Yeah, we have those types of statistics because. Presumably, people, the older they get, the more they know each other, um, the more they know themselves, which is very important. So you yeah. pick people who are more compatible with you. 40-year-olds are wiser and calm down more than 20-year-olds. Exactly. Same person at 20 might have been unhappy in mm-hmm. 20 years of a marriage mm-hmm. to the person they would absolutely love and pick in their 40s. Yes. And the other thing I will say that we know about happiness is that cultural norms actually play a huge part in how we think of ourselves, are we happy or not? So if we fit a norm of how we're supposed to be in society, we inter- we internalize those norms. And so we actually think we're happier in different environments if we're more in line with the cultural expectations of that society. And so, you know, these days there might be less stigma to being single, for instance. Mm-hmm. But before, if you were single and of a certain age, you might 
unless you were a very strong individualistic person, you might actually say, I'm probably not happy because you're using that external marker because you're saying, well, how do I know if I'm happy? Right. I guess if everyone's telling me I can't possibly be happy, I must not be happy. I don't know ex- if this is exactly the framing, but let's go for it. We need a pronouncement. That's mm-hmm. what you're, you're mm-hmm. here for. I'm going to put it this way. Arranged marriages, the participants of arranged marriages are happier or better off than the participants of love marriages. Is that bullshit? That is bullshit. That is bullshit. Let's ask the other way. Love marriages better than arranged marriages. Is that bullshit? Also, we have data that shows that that might also be bullshit. Okay. But we, we don't know. I think it's marriage is a very individualistic thing. Mm-hmm. Except um, if you're Larry King. Then. Except if you're Larry King. And, and it's, it's really it's individualistic nine different And times. it's really hard Maybe to study. Like a lot of those celebrities <laughs> with 10 marriages like yeah. is always one person twice. And I actually I want to say, obviously, that that's not bullshit. And there are studies that show that it's not bullshit, except then I would be doing the exact same thing because I'm using my cultural norms yes. um, to pass judgment on other people's marriages and happiness. And so I don't want to do that because that's the reason why a lot of this data can't be trusted. That's right. Eschewing her own cultural norms for the sake of a higher cause is Maria Konnikova. She is the author of The Confidence Game, and she plays Is That Bullshit with us. Thank you, Maria. Thank you, Mike. HBO Now. I want to watch HBO Now. Great. Do you have HBO? Are you attached to a large cable or perhaps a dish? I don't think you're going to be watching HBO Now. Oh, no. Oh, there's something you do have? It's Roku. Roku players give you the biggest selection of streaming channels, among them HBO Now, plus innovative features like voice search, unbiased search results, and private listening via the Roku remote or your mobile app. And with HBO Now, what does that mean that you get HBO Now? Yeah, you get the big shows, you get your Games of Thrones. I can't even watch the Game of Thrones. They're not sending them out beforehand. So when they hit, they hit you with the HBO Now. But beyond that, you get every season of every HBO show they've ever done. I've been meaning to catch up on that Mayor of Yonkers one. I'm two episodes in. There's Springsteen on the soundtrack, Oscar Isaac. I gotta watch it. I gotta watch it via Roku. Watch what you love, including, have we mentioned this, HBO Now. And no TV packages required. You get the Roku. You get the HBO. You get 3,000 channels and 300,000 movies and TV episodes from the latest TV shows to the cult classics. It's really easy for you to find something really interesting. And we have an offer. For a month, you could try it for free. Visit roku.com slash the gist to learn more about Roku players and to get your one month free HBO Now trial. And now the spiel, four-fifths mental compromise. So yesterday, we tried to throw some cold water on the idea that Donald J. Trump had utterly triumphed on Super Tuesday, that he filleted, gutted, stuffed, mounted, and made a bone soup with the carcasses of his opponents and made the Mexicans pay for it. 
And today, the Stop Trump movement got a boost from that human glass of cold water himself, Mitt Romney. Come on, sometimes the guy features ice cubes. Sometimes when he's feeling all saucy, he goes with crushed ice up in here. This is the very brand of anger that has led other nations into the abyss. Here's what I know. Donald Trump is a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. I agree with Mitt Romney. I don't know what good it will do. I mean, he is a former Republican candidate, that's true, but in the general election, he was a loser. And really, we're talking about Trump supporters. These are people who aren't easily dissuaded. These are people who require only an eventual, not an immediate disavowal of the KKK, allowing for faulty earpieces and whatnot. Trump supporters are hard to convince. I mean, they tell pollsters that the number one quality they look for in a candidate is that he's a straight shooter. Yeah, Trump's a straight shooter. I mean, this is a trait he honed over a juicy Trump steak served aboard the Trump shuttle, jetting from the Trump Taj Mahal to a New Jersey Generals game. It doesn't take a genius or even a graduate from Trump University to know that this guy is an honest-to-goodness success story whose word is gold. But my job here is not to convince you to be skeptical of Trump's stances, but to not fear so much Trump's standing, or at least to understand it. So we have Reuters telling us things like, A matchup with Trump and the fall elections looking more and more inevitable. Likely. Likely is the perfectly good word that you're searching for. More and more likely. Because Trump's chances are likely. The betting markets say he has a 79 or 80% chance of becoming the Republican nominee. The question is, What does that mean, 79 and 80% chance? I have a theory that the brain processes degrees of likeliness very crudely. I think we could train our brains to think otherwise. I think the number one way we do it is to deal with statistics all the time. I think a poker player, for instance, really has a good understanding of what 80% means. They could sort of feel 80%. They've been in hundreds of poker games where on the river, the last card in a game of Texas Hold'em, there were only two cards that could beat him. In other words, there were about 90% chance of winning. But they've been in other games where the card that could beat him is any spade in the deck. So that's about a 75% chance of winning. And because they've done this over and over again, they could really feel and intuit the difference between 90% and 75%. But most of us can't. I think most of us just basically go, will happen, won't happen, probably will happen, probably won't happen, and then 50-50. And other than those five different marks on the continuum between going to happen and not going to happen, we're not really good about conceptualizing chances. So let's talk about 80%. What does an 80% chance mean? Well, back to sports again. I looked it up on this thing that tells you what chance a team in baseball has of winning a game. And the way it does this is not anything too complex. It just loaded into a computer the outcome of every game between 1957 and 2014. So I was looking for when does a team have about an 80% chance of winning? If your team is up by two and you're batting in the top of the sixth inning, there's one out and there's one runner on base, you have a 79.68% chance of winning, meaning that there have been 2,864 games in this exact situation and the team that was up two with one out in the sixth and a runner on base won 
of those chances. If you understand baseball, project yourself into that situation. We've all been a fan of a team in that situation. We expect our team to win if they're ahead in late innings, but we know it doesn't always happen. It is easy to understand percentages in sports and percentages in cards. And maybe if that example meant anything to you, you actually already understood, kind of understood what 80% meant. But it's really hard to find odds to translate this to the average person. For instance, let's take a 68-year-old man who smoked two packs a day for the last 50 years and continues to smoke. Within the next 10 years, what are that guy's chances of developing lung cancer? It's, I thought, a shockingly low 15%. So there is a greater chance that a a two-pack-a-day smoker who's already lived to be 68 won't get lung cancer than there is a chance of Trump becoming president. All right. Then I started looking up four out of five. Last year, four out of five American patients were prescribed an antibiotic. So think about yourself, think about last year, maybe think about your family, think about all the people who went to a doctor, how often were they prescribed an antibiotic, however many people you could think of, oh, he wasn't, she wasn't prescribed an antibiotic, that's sort of the chance of Trump losing. Four out of every five vehicles at a car dealership these days have a sticker price greater than $25,000. Does that help you conceptualize it? How about this? One out of every five people on earth log into Facebook about once a month. That doesn't help at all. That's just a fun fact. Neither does this one. According to a survey, four out of five British women don't shower once a day. So what we're saying is your chances of coming across a freshly fragrant British woman are about the same as Trump's chances of losing the election. Actually, we're not saying that at all. I just like the four out of five British women don't shower once a day stat. Let's just end with basketball. Let's say your team's up by five. You have the ball. There's five and a half minutes left in the game. Your win probability is 79.9%. Basically, you have Donald Trump's chance of winning the election up by five with the ball little under six minutes left. But no, out of the stands, who's this? Former governor of Massachusetts, Mitt Romney. He steals the ball. Romney steals the ball. He's self-deporting himself down the court. This Romney's a taker. He's racing down the court. Can he be stopped? He's got a clear shot. Oh no, he trips. He trips over a binder full of women. Binders full of women undo Mitt Romney. Hey. It's like a Trump loss. It could happen. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi has a skill set and just an ethical base that's far greater than her job as just producer demands. She's been kind of selling tofu with this one, if you know what I'm saying. Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcasts, is a peach blossom of a dude. Andy Bowers, chief content officer of the Panoply Network, will correct that imperforate anus for $19.99. The gist, we're sorry for suggesting that anyone at the Panoply Network, let alone our boss, the man who hired me, Andy Bowers, would have anything to do with the perforation or imperforation of a child's anus. We may have misunderstood the Chinese idiom. Umperu, depru, du peru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>